0: We live uh, in Melbourne and our um, city as a colony was built upon a great, um, by Europeans in the 1800s, on a great rush for gold. So in in the 1850s, we grew something like by about a 1,000% in our population because in 1851, on the outskirts of Melbourne, some gold was found and then all around the outskirts of Melbourne, there was lots of gold found. And so people poured in from... from, um, Uh, from Great Britain and also from China and from America. And uh, there was like a tent city all around where we are right now. So if you look down Smith Street and Brunswick Street and um, Hoddle Street, you'll see buildings going back to the 1850s. And they were the odd buildings that you would have had, pubs but lots of tents everywhere. And they, in that period of that 10 years, they pulled out 100 million British pounds worth of gold um, and so we we got the name, the nickname in Australia, in, in the world, uh, as the richest city in that decade in the world, as Marvelous Melbourne. Um, it was an incredible period for us, and so that's why there are parts of the city you can see that make us look like this grand European city, like the top of Collins Street and that kind of area. See, uh, the hunger for wealth is insatiable. People will travel across the whole world, uh, risk their lives just to make a quick buck. One modern-day equivalent is uh, Silicon Valley, where thousands of computer nerds get together and um, set up little companies and garages and hoping to make their IT startup firm and then have uh, Google or Amazon or Apple or Microsoft buy them out for $50 million, and that's their, that's their modern-day equivalent. Um, most of us here are not engaged in some kind of gold rush or... We're not trying to be entrepreneurs, trying to make a quick buck. Uh, However, we are, I think, still um, in pursuit of wealth in a different way, perhaps. Um, We're still chained to our jobs. We still have a certain taste and expectation for life. Uh, Private health insurance, education, travel, clothes, technology, entertainment. And we're having to work our guts off to pay off our debts. Um, if we don't have what we want, we long for more. So we're all in danger in this respect of being addicted to the pursuit of wealth creation and therefore of becoming worshippers of money. I read this article this week by an Australian former um, palliative care nurse, and she wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And um, what she saw was there was a consistent message in the people on their deathbeds at the end of their life and these are the five things that they said that they'd wish they'd done differently first of all they said that they'd wish they'd had the courage to live a life true to themselves and not the life others expected of me and she said a lot of this was to do with work so people might have you know committed themselves to be an accountant or whatever but deeply down in the heart they wanted to be a ballet dancer or something and their mum told them not to or, you know, that sort of thing. They wanted to be a poet and they they couldn't. The expectations of their life were pushed in the opposite direction to where they wanted to go. The second thing was um, they said that they wished they didn't work so hard. So, you know, they were committed to the relentless treadmill of earning money and they didn't have enough time for family. The third thing they said was they wished that they had had the courage to express their feelings the fourth thing was that they'd wished they'd stayed in touch with their friends, and a lot of this was to do with work as well. So you, you know, you might have friends at a certain period in your twenties, but then you pursue jobs, and that takes you around the state and then interstate and then overseas. And you think that you're doing the right thing by pursuing these careers, but um, all the meantime, you're losing your friends over time. You might sort of maintain a loose connection on social media, but in reality, you're not. You're not, you, you, your pool of friends drops to the point when you're on your deathbed and you're asking the question where are they now? And the last one was that they said that they wished they'd let themselves be happier. So again, the fam- familiarity of doing the same old boring job over and over again combined with maybe some unresolved anger, maybe some depression, maybe some fear of change, some bitterness, some hurts in life, meant that they really longed to laugh and to be around other people and to be at peace. So this author, Bronnie Ware, this um, palliative care nurse, if she's right, every day there are hard-working people in Melbourne, in Australia, lying on their deathbed, realising that they had got their priorities wrong. They'd given their lives and their love to work and to earning money and not to the people that matter all the more pretty heavy pretty heavy now this is not a new phenomenon <coughs> when the time when uh, Ecclesiastes was written they suffered from a very similar disease idolatry there was a great hunger for wealth the land of Israel had become a province in uh, the land of the, of the empire ruled by the Ptolemies um, from Alexandria in Egypt International trade was booming. Some people struck it rich, and if you hadn't struck it rich, you were trying to strike strike it rich. And the teacher who is the voice in Ecclesiastes, this wise teacher, wants to warn God's people against pursuing riches and to encourage them to enjoy God's good gifts. It's a very simple message, but hard to implement. And so this is the purpose of the talk this morning, at the end of this talk, my prayer is that God will convict you not to focus your life on worrying about the pursuit of money, but to inspire you to enjoy God's daily gifts. So the first idea that I want to get across from the teacher is that people who pursue wealth, to quote Mick Jagger, get no satisfaction. I thought it's appropriate. Verse 8, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. It's a weird way to start this passage on wealth. Why is he talking about the poor and why is he saying what he's saying? It seems a bit apathetic. You would expect him to have written something quite different if I had told you to write this, to, to guess what was in this passage. You might have written, if you see the poor oppressed in a district... Injustice rights denied. Start an advocacy campaign. Mm -hmm. Go to change.org and let the world know. Set up a not-for-profit and and raise lots of money. But he doesn't say that at all. He just says, don't be amazed. He explains that there's an official eyed or watching over by a higher one and then another one above him as well. These fat cats... These overpaid bureaucrats in their Italian suits, they look out for each other, and the poor have no chance for justice. These mining magnates with their family inheritance and their private school education, and they're only concerned with lining their own pockets. They don't give a stuff for the poor. In fact, worse than that, they don't pay any tax, and they rip off the poor for even more money. So with all of this corruption in government... With the world's largest multinationals hiring price waterhouse coopers to bounce their money around Luxembourg and the Cayman Islands. With so much injustice and corruption in government and business, the teacher says, do not be surprised that you see the poor oppressed. It's all a result of greed, the greed and graft of arrogant higher officials. There's even an advantage for the landowners in verse 9. It says, The king himself, he owns all this land. And he could produce food and feed the poor and the rich and everyone, but instead he uses it just to make more money and invest the the property in the investment market. I mean, it's just the system is against us. So in verse 10, he says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. If you place your love of money before anything else, you'll experience a dark, emptiness in your soul it's an an unreachable goal, you will not be satisfied you'll always want more it's meaningless now this is a message that you see through the whole bible, it's not just in Ecclesiastes. so let's just look at a few other people in the new testament, let's go to Paul the apostle who says very famous words for the love of money is the root of all evil, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith And pierce themselves with many griefs. And Jesus says similar words Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then in Luke 12, he goes on to tell the parable of the rich fool who built bigger and bigger and bigger barns to store more and more and more in. And the rich fool says to himself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him in reply, "You fool! This very night your life will be demeaned from you, demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God." So, returning to Ecclesiastes five in verse eleven, the teacher says, "What Jesus will say: that the more money you make, the more stuff you accumulate." so the more you will want as your bank balance increases as you gain more and more wealth you will think to yourself well actually i need hired help i need servants and i need you know uh, a chauffeur and i and i need more expensive clothes and i need to put an extension on the house and i need maybe a second house and i need and so on there's no real gain here all the owner can do is to look on The wealth and possessions, is what the phrase says in Ecclesiastes. They just can stare at it. In fact, verse 12 says, if you're just a worker um, down the bottom of the tree, um, because money is not so much of an obsession for you, you actually can sleep easily. But for those who devote everything just to making more and more money, their abundance permits them no sleep. They're thinking in their beds at night. Are my investments safe? Will there be a recession? Is the interest rates going to go up and down? Will I be audited? Thus they toss and turn in their beds. So in this first point about wealth not bringing satisfaction, the teacher gives three good reasons for why people who endlessly pursue wealth can't get, any, can't get no satisfaction. To quote Mick Jagger. First of all, you can't get any satisfaction for money in general. Secondly, when you get more stuff, you just become a fat cat who wants more. And thirdly, your wealth won't let you sleep at night. Interestingly though, if you jump right to the end of the passage, in chapter 6, you see the teacher makes an additional point that the poor have an advantage over the rich. The poor know how to conduct themselves properly, he says. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite, in verse 9. Or to put it in another way, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. The poor live by the sight of their eyes. They are content with what they have. The poor enjoy their daily bread. So, to conclude this first point, the lovers of money are not content with God's daily gifts of food, drink and work. Their wandering eyes always wants more. A bigger TV, an iPhone 6 Plus, a titanium racing bike, whatever your inner north consumer expense might be for you, their appetite will never be satisfied. The teacher judges this is also meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And then the passage goes into this kind of dark zone, right, that we've had read out in chapter 5, verse 13 to 17, and also chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. And it talks about the evil of people not enjoying life. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 13. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Or wealth lost through some misfortune. So that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. It's a grievous evil. These people kept their riches. They didn't enjoy their wealth. They always felt dissatisfied They hoarded it like a rich fool, like the rich fool in Jesus' parable, who just built big barns. But then they lost it all in a bad investment. Maybe the market went into a crash or whatever. Overnight, these rich people become poor. And in verse 14, even though they have children, there's nothing to give to them. It's a bit like Job. Um, What verse uh, 15 says is a bit like Job. They come into this world naked and they return naked. For Job, an enemy army, killed his servants, ploughing the fields and carrying away his oxen and donkeys. Lightning burned up his shepherds and his sheep. Another enemy killed his last servants and carried off his camels. And a great wind destroyed the house occupied by his children and killed them all. Having lost everything, he lamented, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. But because of Job's great faith, he continued to worship God. And said, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's in Job chapter 121. But the man in Ecclesiastes that's being talked about by the teacher isn't doesn't have that great faith. And so verse 16, This is a grievous evil. He gets nothing for his hard work. So it is with pursuing wealth. It slips through your fingers. A lifetime wasted. So there's an evil result in verse 17. All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. Who wants to eat alone? Especially in biblical times. Uh, You might be an introvert who likes to eat alone, but imagine if you only ever ate alone. Remember the prodigal son coming home um, after being away and his father runs out to meet him and then throws a big party and kills a fatted calf and they're all together. It strikes me the imagery of the Bible is clear. Heaven is a big party a big banquet with lots of people, and hell is eating on your own. These rich who have lost their riches eat all alone in darkness. Their so-called friends have left them. They're not around anymore. The house repayments have defaulted and they've lost their family home. The gas and the electricity has been cut off. They can't light their lamps at night. Their life is over. There is no joy left. They may as well be dead. And as they reflect on their wasted life, on what might have been, they eat in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger. And the teacher piles up the painful consequences of, of their waste of life. It's just like more and more darkness. And nobody wants to end up like this. So if you want to turn the volume up to, to eleven for some violent Hebrew fire, <laughs> it says this, think about the man who is everything, all the wealth and prosperity that you could imagine. But they could not enjoy it. Think about that person. And then look at chapter 6, verse 3. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. That's turning it up to 11. This person has a miserable life because he can't enjoy his prosperity, and so he also doesn't have a burial. How can a stillborn child be better off? Well, it explains it in verses four and five. "The stillborn comes into meaninglessness, but then goes straight into the darkness, and in darkness, its name is covered and shrouded. It doesn't see the life of day, the, the life of day, or know anything about the pain of life in this world." The teacher is saying, "A miserable, long life where it's just the long pain, the long journey of dissatisfaction is actually worse than this. But the stillborn child actually gets rest and a proper burial. Darkness. Don't worry, we're going to come out the other side. So the teacher has made two punchy points so far. He said, people who pursue pursue wealth will get no satisfaction. And secondly, it is evil when people do not enjoy their life. So for the last point, in chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, enjoy God's daily gifts. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. This is what I have observed to be good. Here's the hope. He says, It is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their um, toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. The key word here is enjoyment. We've got the life God has given us, so we have a few choices. We could use our days on earth to pursue money and get more wealth and fill ourselves up with more and more stuff. Or we could go down another path and enjoy the good gifts that God has just given us and, and, and prioritise that. We start with the common everyday things the teacher suggests. Find enjoyment just in the food that you eat, in the drink that you have, in your work. You don't have to be rich to find something to enjoy each day. So what about people who have lots of money? And let's face it, many of us have lots of money. Many people here have lots of money. You could argue we all do, being in this part of the world, the the most livable city in the world. Chapter 5, verse 19 says, When God gives someone wealth and possessions, and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. So God actually gives the ability to eat and enjoy what you have. So it seems just having wealth is not the evil being discussed here. Just having money and possessions isn't the evil in itself. The problem is the relentless pursuit of wealth for its own sake. Wealth as an end in itself is a grievous evil. It will lead you to to ruin. But you can accept wealth as a gift from God as well. One theologian writes, the person who recognises God as the centre of life is free to enjoy life as a gift precisely because he has not given his heart to something less than God. The capacity to, to enjoy is here declared to come from putting first things first and to be God-given. If you find yourself as fortunate to have money, then Ecclesiastes isn't calling it to some kind of middle-class guilt but to enjoy it, but also to help it to serve other people. Hold on to the wealth lightly. Give God the glory. Put him first in your heart. And verse 20 says, They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. So the most important thing to do is to go with a gladness of heart. Try and enjoy your life. Have a smile on your face and see the things that God's given you. Remember the top five regrets of the people on their deathbed? The last one, number five, was I wish I had let myself be happier. God wants you to enjoy your life. If you are constantly angry or downbeat, don't see that as a virtue. That's not Christian piety. But seek psychological help if you're always angry. Come to me, let's pray together. This is not how God wants you to be. A life filled with God giving gladness of heart can face challenges and stress and still find joy. So the teacher's given us two paths. First path, pursue wealth for its own sake but never be satisfied and end in disaster. You can choose that one if you want. The second path is focus on enjoying God's gifts every day. The teacher wants us to follow that second path. Now Jesus says this, he says in Matthew 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Here's the two paths. At another time, Jesus tells us not to pursue wealth, and he says in Luke 12, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. What should we be doing with our lives? See, Jesus actually spoke about money more than many other topics. He says this in John 6, verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Shouldn't we be working hard? Isn't that what we should be doing? Going out and earning a living? Bringing home the pay packet? In a weird way, look, there'll be proverbs tell you to do that. Um, but also hold in context, hold, hold together with that what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is saying and what Jesus is saying, which is this: It is the Gentiles who strive for all of these things. Strive first for the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, such as food and drink, will be given to you as well. Matthew six thirty-two to thirty-three. So the teacher, and Jesus, and the Apostle Paul and the whole of the Bible agree that food and drink are gifts from God. They agree that God will give us whatever we need to live on this earth. But spending our life pursuing wealth is a waste of time. It's a waste of our few days we have here, and it will lead to certain disaster. Don't be lying on your deathbed full of regrets. Instead, spend your life focusing on the kingdom of God and his righteousness Then you can enjoy God's gifts to you every day. The simple things, the meals, work and health, family and friends, forgiveness and salvation. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let's pray. Lord God, this is the simplest of message, and wisdom seems to get to these basic principles. And yet it seems so hard to apply it in our lives, and we pray... As a community here at Merry Creek Anglican, we can be uh, middle class Melbournians that um, go against the grain and actually don't devote our lives just to more and more and more and more possessions, more wealth, and more. And, and that we don't um, have our priorities wrong and put, put work above relationships and friendships and, and family. We pray that we can learn to enjoy the good gifts that you have given us and that we can be people who pursue the kingdom of God. Uh, The world is a messy place. The world seems so meaningless, and that's what we've learned in this series. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And yet we are also told by the teacher and by the whole Bible that amongst this craziness of this universe, the craziness of life, that we're to look to the Creator, to our Creator, God. We're to look to the good news of Jesus. We're to look at the hope that you have given us that one day you're going to end all of this meaninglessness. And in the meantime, that we're to enjoy life and that we're to pursue your kingdom and that we're to pursue righteousness and living in Christ-like way. Because we know, Lord Jesus, that you are the king over the meaninglessness and that you're going to end it all one day. Amen. Mm.